God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I have said those words more times than I can count. As someone who's a recovering alcoholic, this is prayer. It's a particular prayer. It's one of these things very, very close to my heart and indeed has helped me grow, has helped me work with my own spiritual growth, probably more than any other words. These words for a long time were attributed to a guy named Ronald Niebuhr. Some of you might know was the most sort of famous, well-known, progressive theologian of the 20th century. And actually, there's been a bit of a controversy recently um, about who actually wrote the words. Was it Ronald Niebuhr? Was it someone else? Were they in existence before he actually penned them? Was he using different oral versions of them before he actually wrote them down? Well, and I don't want to get into the history too much. Uh, as Casey Stengel said, the great manager, you could look it up and you can. Just Google the words Serenity Prayer and Yale Alumni Magazine and you will find a pretty exhaustive history of the theories, the origins of the Serenity Prayer. Today, I don't want to go too much into the history, but rather I want to get to the heart of what the Serenity Prayer is really all about, the work that it can help us do, whether you're in recovery or whether you're not. Um, and, and I want to share a story with you to help us go a little deeper into it from uh, the Trappist brother Thomas Keating. And if you're at all like the 9 a.m. crew, um, you're going to get really, really sad about the story about the monkeys, I'm going to tell you. And just, uh, just accept it. It's a sad story. It happened long ago and far away. Hopefully it doesn't happen anymore. But there's, there is a story about a particular way that hunters in Africa used to try and trap monkeys, which is that they used to get a, a, a coconut or coconuts, and they used to uh, uh, cleave the coconuts in half, and they would uh, scoop out the, the meat from inside, and they would put into it this sort of sweet meat, this treat that the monkeys really, really liked. And they'd seal it back up, but for a little slit where the monkeys could sort of reach their hands in and grasp the sweet meat that the hunters had put inside. The only problem was is that the, the hands could go in like this, the little monkey paws could go in like this, but the minute they grasped into a fist and got the treat that they wanted, they... They tried to pull it out, and it wasn't, and, and they wouldn't let go, and they were caught. And it was in that way that the monkeys could be captured and unfortunately killed. Think about these worried, anxious, frustrated monkeys, able to be snared and caught by the hunters so easily. You see, we can think about it, and we can say, well, if they could let go, they could be free. But holding on so tightly, they were brought to their doom. Now, this is a sad story about monkeys, but the reason I tell it, what it really reminds me of, is that wonderful Buddhist phrase, the monkey mind. The mind that hops around, not just taking a look at one thing after another after another, but the kind of mind that anxiously, worriedly, frenetically hops around from one thing to another to another. We can see that in our lives or in other people's lives when we experience or perceive people who worry themselves sick. Nothing, I think, is more disempowering in our mental and spiritual states other or more than this kind of worry. Thoreau, our great teacher and prophet of our Unitarian movement, said a full, well before a century for the DSM, you know, the DSM, that diagnostic manual that sits in a lot of uh, doctor's offices. And literally, I did this once when I was chronically suffering from anxiety, and my doctor didn't have much background, took down the DSM, and I think checked out 14 out of the 15 categories. Yep, you have panic disorder. Well, you know, if you name it, you can claim it, you can start to cure it, I guess. So that was a step on the road. But a century, well before a century before this DSM, 
Thoreau said this kind of worry, this incessant worry, he called it a well-nigh, almost incurable form of disease. I know in my life I have felt from time to time and sometimes would have counseled people and sometimes even family members have told me, well, if I didn't worry so much, how could I show you that I care? (laughs) This confuses two things very badly. Indifference is not the opposite of worry. Take it this way, that worry is to genuine care what... um, I'm not making light of this, but this is what I really feel. Worry is to genuine care what stalking is to true romance. (laughs) Think about it. It is an obsessive perversion of our relationship to someone or to something. All the time that we spend worrying, worrying, consumed by worry, is time that we actually don't spend living. The hope and this is the kind of work of the serenity prayer that it invites us to do, is to experience care beyond worry. The contrast, a contrast, to monkey mind is certainly a serene mind. Serenity prayer invites us to ask ourselves, what would our love and what would our commitment look like? What is it like without our worry and without our stress? How wonderful that is, how wonderful that can be. The serenity prayer invites us to take a look at our, quote-unquote, coconuts. The traps that we set up for ourselves that we get our hands into and we won't let go of. So the work of the serenity prayer is this. Step away from the coconut. It's going to be our unofficial sort of mascot. Motto for today's message, how to step away from those coconuts, whatever they are to you, whatever is symbolized by them, those things, those emotional, mental, spiritual power grabs that causes us and very often other people to suffer. And knowing that we might let go of our worry and let go of what we cannot control, how then do we turn into the positive work? of being able to affirmatively say we will do the best and the most with what is left in our hands. The reason that I love the serenity prayer so much is that it is fundamentally about our relationship with power. Learning to use the power that is ours, whatever you consider your level of power to be, to use it in wise ways. Sometimes we think, and I'll come clean here, sometimes I think, well, if only I just had a little bit more quantity of power, then all my problems would be solved. And really what this translates in my mind, and perhaps in yours, your your laughter will be knowing, you know, I I will know that you will uh, associate with what I'm saying if if you laugh. Um, This quest for more power translates into, if only I could get people to do what I really want them to do, then I wouldn't have any more problems. If only I could get them to do what I wanted them to do, then I'd have enough power and I would be able to be okay. Now, I don't want to disregard the fact that there are objectively different levels of power in our world. It is a a very different circumstance, a very different way to grow up between, let's say, a child who's in West Philly and a child who's here in West Pikeland. I don't want to disregard those differences in power. And at the same time, 
what the serenity prayer does is invites us to take a look at wherever we are, whatever we consider our level of power or empowerment to be, and say, how is it that we can misuse or abuse our power in the first place? So that it might be not a quest for more power or less power, but the wise use of our power. I love that the prayer, the serenity prayer, starts with what I perceive now as a request. God grant me. I have to tell you, when I first decided I had to put down the bottle and and get sober, I said the serenity prayer because other people I knew who respected, who I respected, were saying the serenity prayer, and I just sort of followed along. (laughs) I didn't know what exactly they were talking about the serenity prayer because I didn't have any. And so I think... At first I heard, God grant me as a kind of command. Give me. Mine. I had lived enough like that, that's what I knew, to know that wouldn't work. In time, I would learn that, in fact, this kind of primal speech, when our hands are stuck in the coconuts and we will not let go of our grasp and just extricate them by pulling away and letting go, That this kind of prayer is the most primal speech that there is. It's also spiritually universal. Not just from the Western tradition. I think of the Pure Land School of Japanese Buddhism. as a tradition of not just the meditation and one's own efforts. But also a practice of calling on the name of what they call the Buddha of the Infinite Lights. The Amitabha Buddha. In Islam, it is a practice of changing our consciousness through the chanting of the 99 names of Allah. There's also the practice in Hinduism of chanting the pantheon of the Hindu deities, kind of like if you have heard it in the Western version, what George Harrison does at the end of My Sweet Lord. But perhaps underneath all the different ways of this prayer of relating to that which is bigger than us, I think the secret of this prayer is just really simple. It's learning to ask for help. Just simply learning to ask for help. Not demanding help. Not requiring instant gratification. Or even instant release from what afflicts us. And certainly not immediate answers. Not prayer as now. But prayer as please. Or prayer as, I'm willing to try anything to get out of this coconut. I want to learn to let go. And then if we are truly willing to do this, we will find that we are opening. That our hearts, our spirits are opening. And perhaps that letting go can really begin. Now, the prayer is also, I think, so beautiful and so helpful because it is not just about the letting go of what we cannot control, what we must accept. It is also about turning ourselves fully in the direction of that which we can honestly shape. It is about learning to make a good faith effort with what is really in our hands and recognizing that an honest estimation of that does very often require courage. The serenity prayer encourages us to move from a fixation to a deeper freedom. It does not matter in the serenity prayer whether your fixation is a drink or a drug or another person 
or a medical test that you either can't take or are so dead worried, dead set worried that what's it going to say when it comes back to you? Or whether the fixation is just that all night worry about whether you're going to keep that job or that all night worry about whether you're going to get that job. The serenity prayer recognizes that there is much that we can shape and handle, but our worry disturbs and contorts our relationship to what is really in our hands. I know when I find myself in one of these places in which my worry starts to overwhelm me that I I feel caught between two very harmful poles sort of swinging, bouncing back and forth. The paralysis of feeling that I must do everything and the paralysis of feeling that I can do nothing. The paralysis of all right now or the paralysis of complete incompetence. This is why I found the serenity prayer so helpful, is to say, this, something, I can do at least. And this, someone, is who I can become. About four weeks ago, I got a story that was sent to me by about three or four of you. Originally, it came from Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times. Y'all know who Nicholas Kristof is? He sort of has become very much the, the conscience of that editorial and that opinion page by shining a light and holding up a mirror onto some of the worst, most forgotten aspects of our world and saying, here, we must look. We cannot look away. Well, he was sharing this day a particular story about a particular family here in the States. The name of this family is the Salwin family. Dad Kevin and daughter Hannah and uh, mom and a dad whose actually names I cannot recall, not terribly important right now. One day, dad was driving and, and daughter Hannah was in the back seat. And uh, they lived in a very affluent suburb of Atlanta. And on the one side, they saw a uh, homeless man on the side of the road. And on the other side next to them, they saw a very, very expensive car. And uh, in, in, in the beautiful way that uh, teenagers sometimes think and can stir the conscience, she turned to dad and said, if that man sold his car, that man would have something more to eat. And she kept after it. She kept after it. She told, uh, she told mom when she got home and she just wouldn't let up and wouldn't let up. And mom somewhat rhetorically said, well, what do you want us to do? Sell our house? And Hannah said, yes. <laughs> and she kept on it. And probably the most resistant was her younger brother who thought this was absolutely crazy. But in fact, this is what they did. They sold their 6,500 square foot house in the Atlanta suburbs. They took half that money and moved to a more modest replacement home and took $800,000, half of that sale, and gave all of it away to anti-poverty work in Ghana, a place that they had never been but a place that they know would really be helped by their gift. Now, the cool thing is in this story is that, in fact, they gained a tremendous amount of surrendering, not just in individuals, not just in reaching out and trying to approach a problem that is so vexing for so many of us, which is the extreme poverty, the extreme disparities in wealth that exist in our world. The cool thing is they became happier as a family. They found that with less space in their new house, they had less space to disappear from each other. They found that they were drawn together, and they spent more time together. The dad, Kevin, Mr. Salwin, said, We essentially traded stuff for togetherness and for connectedness. 
They experienced a deepening of love and community and what it meant to be family. They made the most profound change that anyone, any of us really can make, which is to help make change for other and in other people's lives simultaneously recognizing that they themselves were growing and deepening. The serenity prayer in the context of this problem, this, con- this problem of that, that is so vexing, that there are so many poor and what might we do? This was their answer. They showed courage. They showed imagination. They were granted serenity and growth as a family. And they knew also the wisdom to know the difference. They could not do everything, but they did their thing. And by the way, in telling you this story, I don't want to make and tell you their thing must be your thing. That's not the point of this story. It's not that you all got to sell your houses and give halfway. Oh, it's a really cool story, actually. I think you got to admit. Read the book. It's called The Power of Half. It's, it's fascinating. But it's more that template of recognizing that there are, whether within us or beyond us, many of these vexing coconuts, <laughs> many of these things that we would wish to grasp and that just end, us, end up grasping and hurting our hearts. But there isn't just one response to this. And there isn't just one final response to the serenity prayer. The humility that my sobriety has taught me has taught me most fundamentally that I need, I strike that, I want, I choose to say the serenity prayer every day. Because every day there is something different that I can look at through this prism of what I would hope to have serenity so I can accept it. And what I could hope to have courage so that I could start to change it. The work of the serenity prayer shifts between different times and different seasons in our lives, depending upon who you are and where we are and what we are doing. This past week, I heard an amazing story of a woman with um, scleroderma. Do you know this? Do you know this disease, scleroderma? Very often, it, it shows up in um, in a sort of tightening of the skin and a tightening of the hands. And it it is always a very difficult disease to deal with, but in fact it can be quite fatal because what tightens the skin can also in fact infest and work within our organs. And what it happens is that healthy cells get almost eaten, uh, that, that our autoimmune system turns upon its own healthy cells. Well, a decade ago, this woman with scleroderma and the intense case that she had would have very, very few choices. Uh, one of her last choices a couple years ago, what she thought would have been her last choice, was to undergo chemo, a really radical form of chemo that deleted and, and, and really hurt her immune system, but she thought it might keep her alive a little bit longer. But in fact, circumstances as they are, they change. She found out she had the opportunity to go for stem cell treatment. And the stem cell treatment radically, radically improved her health. It is not static this question of what we must accept and what we can change. It is a question we need to ask ourselves regardless of whether we are as sick as this woman or wanting to help as much as the Selwyn family, whatever our circumstances. So maybe you're sitting here today and you're feeling serene or not serene or you can't think particularly whether you have a coconut or whether you want to have a coconut or whether you're caught in any coconut. Well, perhaps at the broadest level, then, this is the spiritual work given to all of us, is that as my mentor in the ministry, Forest Church, put so well before he passed on, that we are creatures 
born into life and fated to die. That indeed, we start our religious quest the moment when we start to make peace. Make peace with the fact that we are all mortal. I love what the author Tom Robbins said. He said that our fear of death, and not just a physical death, but our fear of any kind of limitation, our fear of any kind of limitation, it is the beginning of our mental and spiritual slavery. Turn this over. The acceptance of death. Not looking forward to it, not desiring it, but just the acceptance of what it means to be alive and what it means to have limits and to exist within those limits. This is the beginning of our liberation. The liberation away from where we are stuck. The liberation away from our fixations of that worry of what we cannot control but in our minds hope to. And not just freedom from, but freedom to. Freedom to give our utmost in this life. And then starting to know the difference between what we must let go of and what we must hold so intentionally. And that finally, in that place, we will know what it is to be wise. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, grant us, each and every one of us, each in our own way, serenity. Serenity that we might have hearts open enough to accept what we or perhaps no one could change. Through this, may we find courage. Courage not just to face, but to know and to act. To act from love, to act from generosity, to act and shape what is ours. May our lives take on the shape of wisdom, not just with the knowledge, but with the shape of our commitment, with the shape of our action, with the shape of our ability to risk, knowing and hoping that we do not swing between that place of wanting to do everything and believing we can do nothing, but to become in this life a someone that can do something surrounded by other someones who are doing their some things. And in this, may we realize that we are not alone. Amen.